on this episode of the free your energy podcast i dive into a deep meandering conversation with my good friend mark groves you've seen his work under the instagram handle create the love mark groves is a human connection specialist a long-winded talker a lover of mountains and one of my good friends one of my brothers let's dive right into the start of my conversation with mark groves we- yeah i agree i mean the first one was a lot i feel like we could talk for hours and i you know we already do talk a lot so it's like might as well record them because we do enjoy the conversations we have. Maybe other people will, which is kind of a weird concept that people listen to other people talk about things. It actually is kind of weird when you think about it. Like you're going to listen to me talk. But then it's like when you really dive into it, it's like, well, I can actually get value out of other people talking. You know, like if you're a basketball player and you somehow listen to Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan talking to each other, you're going to get value. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, that's there's something I mean, that's how we learn is both observing people's behaviors. Learn That's how we learn empathy um, by modeling, by seeing what works for other people, what doesn't. And I think the same is true for the structure of words. Like I find when I complete a sentence that I've never said before about a concept, you're really just practicing getting the right words in the right order. And that's why I think freedom of speech is so important, because it really is the trailblazing of making risky statements that um, transform the world and what we believe is possible. When it comes to freedom of speech, do you believe that people are entitled to say whatever they want, however they, whatever they think, whatever they feel, or do you think there needs to be, you know, some type of, you know, filter or, 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 boundary policing you know i'm not sure exactly but do you think there needs to be some type of well i think you know i think there's a there's a fine line right and for me to decide what that line is is very subjective because i could put a line where my discomfort starts so then i never have to have conversations or hear conversations that disagree with my identity and my model of the world for me the line is is what they're saying inciting violence or encouraging violence or um, divisiveness. But you know, you look at what's occurring right now with the different perspectives on coronavirus and, and its origins and all the things. Again, this isn't about that or about what's right or what's wrong, because I don't care really about, I care about that, but it's not, that's not what I'm hanging my hat on. It's more that you have the right to disagree with your government. You have the right to disagree with the WHO or the CDC. You have the right to disagree with anybody. And I will fight for anyone's right to hold a different belief and, and to have the right to have it, you know, because that's how really ultimately what changes and holds governments accountable and people accountable is someone took a giant risk to be rejected, hurt, killed, all these things in order to for us to expand our ignorance. Really, ultimately, it's ignorance, but it's usually privileged ignorance. It's usually ignorance that's getting rewarded. I don't have to see outside of this myopic lens because my life's pretty damn good. But are we willing to get uncomfortable and give away or, um, you know, because it is a privilege to not speak up for a cause, you know? 
There's a couple thin lines there. Yeah, uh, many. The, 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 just trying to go in reverse order here, like, you know, speaking up for a cause for, you know, I've been watching the Michael Jordan documentary. And uh, have you been able to see that? I've seen the first four episodes. I haven't got the last two yet. Dude, this it's incredible media. It's a it's amazing it's story. ESPN, man. When it, like thirty for thirty is one of my favorite series. Yeah, they they really just dive into these stories, man. It's incredible. And one thing that I noticed is, you know, he had a a situation where there was, and this is in the later episodes, the ones you missed, but there was a you know Spoiler, politician right? in uh, New York City or not New York. I'm sorry, North Carolina, where he's from. Long story short, you know. They wanted him to endorse one guy. The other guy, he had some history of racism and some policies that weren't, you know, moving forward. You know, it was kind of an old school mindset. And he got a lot of slack and a lot of negativity for not, you know, being willing to endorse, you know, this new guy and his policies. And personally, I don't expect anyone to be an activist. To me, just just because you're an athlete, I don't expect you to be an activist. Just because Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown became activists and they use, you know, their platform and, you know, they dealt with a lot of crap, you know, a lot of stuff, a lot. Yeah. You know, even Muhammad Ali was jailed. You know, Jim Brown was called the N-word by his own teammates. So it's like mm-hmm. I I get their journeys, but to, in my opinion, to cast on someone like, hey, you need to be an activist because you have this platform i just don't think that's fair because everyone isn't cut out for that and the other thing is like i don't want you doing something that's not genuine to you like Mm. i I want you to be genuine to your path you know and do you ever get that on yours because i do on mine where someone will say it's your responsibility because you have a platform i'm like don't put your responsibilities onto me like don't project what you think i should do with my voice Versus what, as you said, what authentically come, because if I start supporting some cause that I don't really even know about, that I'm not even really that passionate about, I'm not going to change anyone's behavior, you know, (laughs) because it's not authentic. It's not coming from this like passionate space that this must change or this must stop or this must be. Um, But whenever anyone tries to shame with that type of language, like it's your response. I mean, I think like a lot of celebrities experience that a lot of musicians, a lot of athletes, as you said, where it's like, but it's your job. You're an, you're a uh, role model. And I, you know, I've heard many musicians who have, who would not be able to live up to that high (laughs) expectation of them say, I never made myself your child's role model. Yeah. That, that, look, that's not their job. Their job is to make good music. It's my job to parent my kids. <laughs> you know, I don't know why, like where <laughs> we, where we put, where that came from. Like, I need you to be a good role model. No, like, I don't. Britney Spears to parent our children. <laughs> like, I think there's a line of like, what also do we trust people to take in media and information and make good choices on their own? I think there's a lot of trust, a lot, a lack of trust in that I can watch a read. It's like any stuff that's getting censored currently is getting censored because people don't want someone to see another narrative. But but that's ultimately, I think that's the challenge that we have in relationship is we can't hold the possibility of two truths at the same time. Like my experience in my childhood and where I grew up, all the things that influenced me in relationship are in relationship to all the things that shaped you and your experience and both of us have the right to those things. And 
if we can't hold the possibility of ourselves being wrong and there being other truths that exist because they do, then I think we we do it, of course, to maintain certainty, to make sure that our identity, that we, the parts like if I accept that one thing is wrong that I believe, now what else is wrong that I believe? And it opens up this giant level of uncertainty and then it opens this bag of worms. But really, all of the best parts of life are actually in the space of the I don't know in the curiosity. I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what this conversation is going to lead to. That's, I don't know what this hello is going to lead to or this goodbye or, or this drawing or this first piece of art or this first conversation or the first episode you ever made of your podcast or the first post you ever made on Instagram. I know for me, first post I ever made, I never expected to be here today where people want to listen to me. I swear all my teachers growing up told me I talked too much and no one wanted to hear me. <laughs> so it's a whole different place now. Where did Mark Groves grow up? Oh, I grew up in Calgary, Canada, which is like, uh, I like to call Alberta, which is the province, which in Canada, for people who don't know, we have provinces instead of states. Um, yeah, and it's like the Texas of Canada. So I kind of grew up in like very oil and gas. Um, yeah. The Texas of Canada. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Texas is a very, very interesting place. Yeah, it was such diversity. And, and we have the similar thing in that, you know, it's it's more conservative. It's more, um, I'd say it's changing a little bit. But I think anywhere where oil and gas is the basis of the economy, it's uh, pretty struggling right now. Mm. And as a kid, you know, they were saying you were you were talking too much. But I mean, <laughs> were you, where was that? Where was that coming from? When did you when did you experience that? Well, I was the youngest in my family and my family's pretty loud. So if you wanted to get heard, you had to get loud. And um, that probably just translated to uh, being in school and, and knowing that that was one way to get noticed. You know, that was one way to, to be funny, to be the class clown, those types of things. Um, I laughed because I was looking at my grade six report card not that long ago. My mom had kept all those things in like a school book. And the grade six report card said, Mark feels the need to give his unsolicited opinion in class. <laughs> and I was just laughing because I'm like, you know, I very much think that the thing that was our sort of survival strategy or the way we often coped becomes so overdeveloped that it becomes a superpower when it's channeled in the right way instead of a trauma response way um, or like just a pain wound based way. And, and so, I'm sorry, I got to cut that off. Um, and so I definitely found that I, you know, I overdeveloped that skill, but turned in the right way, it can be actually quite useful. Mm. Damn. And you grew up, you went to school in Canada your whole life? Yeah, I went to, and it wasn't until like my early 30s that I went and did a program in New York in positive psychology, but before that, yeah, it was all, all Canada, man, all Canada. Wow, what's the what's the school system like, like, or at least your experience? Well, it's I would, from my understanding, I think it's pretty similar to the U.S. Um, where I went to school, it was more of an inner city school, and I did French immersions, and it was a Catholic school, so it was part of the public's like part of a public school system. Um, Catholic schools and a real interesting thing, but you know that. That definitely offers a different window of uh, education or lack thereof sometimes. And then when you were in New York, what, how long were you out in New York? 
I would go there every month for eight, I think it was eight or nine months, which was really great. I'd go for a weekend every month. And uh, when I wasn't there doing the immersion, I was throughout the week, like throughout the month, sorry, um, studying and like doing an online education and studying positive psychology, which is really just like psychology was previously more focused on like, what's wrong with people? Why are people depressed? Why are people anxious? You know, all those things, more problem centric and Positive psychology was born from the idea, okay, well, what is it about people that thrive, that are flourishing, that are happy, that are um, that have great relationships? That's where, you know, the initial desire to understand it came from was this desire to understand, like, why do some people just have amazing relationships and other people don't? And why aren't we taught the space between those two things? Because I certainly wasn't taught that. I mean, I was blessed to grow up in a family that had you know, my father's emotionally intelligent. They had reasonably good communication. Um, the family was healthy-ish. So I was very blessed to have been born into that. Mm, healthy-ish. Well, I always add an ish because it leaves room for to be human. You know, it leaves room for reactivity that my parents, you know, didn't always do things perfectly or right. And, and I love them for that because I then... <laughs> I had to learn that stuff on my own too. And they certainly offered a non-judgmental space for me to learn. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like I remember when I was doing my undergrad going to college, I remember like, what am I going to study? Now, in hindsight, I probably would have rather gone to Europe than go to college or go travel the world or something. But I was still living in that system of like, you have to get a degree. And when you get a degree, you have to get this kind of job so that you can take care of your family. And I remember wanting to choose what I was going to do and being like, oh, I really love the idea of psychology and things like that or art. And then hearing like, no, uh, you got to get us, you won't make any money as an artist or it, with a you know science degree unless you become a physician or an accountant. You have to become an accountant or in finance. And so that's really why I did my undergrad in finance, because I could tell you, I never want to touch a spreadsheet again after I was done that. It's so interesting to me how as uh, parents or society, I'm not really sure who to kind of pinpoint, could be a collective of people, but it's so interesting how people try to pass on, hey, this is the right way to do things. When to me, I just feel like if you're going to tell someone, hey, this is the right way to do something, I feel like it needs to be more of a like revolutionary approach where you're looking at the data of the current times mm. and you're also looking at and trying your best to project what the future may be. You know, I, I was lucky enough that when I was young, I, I took a typing class and in that typing class, you know, they taught us literally where to put your hands, you know, where to put your hands, how to just feel the keys and know where to type. And I remember doing these exercises to get, you know, your uh, WPM, your words per minute. I remember that, doing those, the little yeah. like games you'd play to make your car faster and stuff like that. Dude, that is one of the greatest experiences that I had in school because to me, that was like a practical skill that I was learning. It wasn't just like, a, hey, you just need to go to school just because you need to go to school. Like I needed, I need skills, you know, that's a practical skill. And then the whole, you know, I went to college too. I, some days I wish I didn't. Some days I'm grateful because I, <laughs> I do... You know, I do use what I what I learned, but 
you know, when did you realize that finance wasn't? Because I, I believe you told me you used to work in finance, right? Like, what was your? <laughs> no, I was even worse, man. I used to work in pharmaceutical sales. How'd you uh, get into pharmaceuticals? <laughs> well, my dad actually, when I was growing up, my dad studied heart failure. He was a scientist, a researcher, and um, when I was in college, my dad was moved to an administrative role. And he was working and managing the education of the cardiology department at the hospital and the university. And so I was really fascinated by that stuff. But uh, when I got out of college, I had a job with Oracle, the database company, um, like Microsoft, and the tech industry crashed. So I didn't have a job. And my dad was like, yeah, maybe you should check out pharmaceutical sales. He was working with a lot of reps because they were getting speakers in to, for the education and so I went and worked with a rep one day and I was like, wow, you get paid to do this? This is crazy. And so I started my, <laughs> it was a fairly long career actually in that, in that world, but interesting to, I was so fascinated with changing human behavior with like changing someone's decisions or loyalties or, you know, because I was, I wanted someone to switch from another product to mine, you know, ultimately, or educate on a product and have them start using if, if it was a new area. And it's interesting to look in hindsight because I remember talking to a friend of mine who teaches human behavior and that kind of stuff. And I was saying like, wow, I was, I was essentially using my skill set to, um, in some ways, create diseases, you know, and, and I woke up one day just sort of, it was a progressive wake up. I don't want to say it was one day, but when you wake up to one thing, like you were saying, why am I going to live this way? Why am I choosing this thing? Why do I tolerate um, a lesser version of myself, uh, a lesser version of a relationship? Which is not to say that you're not open to compromise in the humanness of a relationship. Not a There's no such thing as a conflict-free relationship. And if it is conflict-free, I can promise you there's a lot of stuff going on below that no one's talking about. But I think when you wake up to one area of your life going, why do I do this? you have no choice but to wake up to every area of your life. And sometimes it's a quick awakening and it shakes everything up. And otherwise it's a slow burn. And, you know, I just find if you turn down your awareness, which I think we are born wide open, and then we learn to turn down our, our bigness, our voices, our everything, uh, our desires, our dreams. And then we wake up one day and we realize that we're on a volume five of 10 well, you can't be on volume five in one area of your life and not every area of your life. It's not optional because you have to turn down a part of you and maybe to survive. Um, and then one day you realize, holy shit, what happens if I turn to 10 in this area? Oh my God, what's possible? You see that in, you know, what's very visceral and a quick change is when someone changes their body and their nutrition, they get immediate feedback, but you don't get necessarily immediate feedback when you lay a boundary or have a hard conversation you've never had or say, I love you when normally you shut down. And, you know, I think this is the, the work of really asking, who am I? Why do I do what I do? Is it because I, it comes from my soul? You know, much like you were saying about work is, is this what we've always done? Or are we taking into account the future and what's going on currently? And old paradigms don't, don't fit for new ways of being, but look at us. We're, so trying to keep held on to old paradigms in so many ways, how we work, how we relate, how we do medicine, how we do everything. How do we adjust? If I'm a person who 
you know, change is hard for me. You know, I like my routines that I've been doing and maybe my life has some discomfort. Maybe I don't have the quality of life I have that I desire, you know, within my within my body or within my, you know, my mental, within my financial, within my, you know, my day to day, my relationships, relationship with self. How do I how do I open myself to change if I've resisted it for so long? If I'm so used to being on level four, level three, level two, level one, only getting up to my level five, not being, not feeling worthy of my level 10, not even willing to go to a level 10 because, you know, so-and-so from my past said I'm unworthy and so-and-so used to put me down or you know, maybe something even serious, like this person used to abuse me. And Mm -hmm. because of the abuse I went through, I can't get to my level 10 because, you know, the abuse has me trapped here, you know, or, you know, maybe a person who maybe they feel like, you know, because they're uh, something of their identity, whether it be age or, you know, gender or, you know, something of their like socioeconomic status is holding them back. Like, where do they begin? Where do we begin to, I'm at a level five. I want to go to 10. How do I get there? My all incredibly important points. And, you know, sometimes we're at uh, a level five for survival. Sometimes we're at a level five because we have to be, because being at a 10 is going to get us kicked out of our family or hurt if we're in an abusive relationship you know, all of those types of things. So I certainly have compassion for why we learned to be a five, you know, because we don't learn to be a five because it was really supportive of an environment where we could be a 10, right? Otherwise we'd be 10, so we'd be living life wide open. Um, But I think the first step is just that moment of inquiry. Why am I at a five? I mean, that is, we want all the answers as soon as we open the inquiry, but the answers don't come because in, in, at least in my experience, I'm not sure that at that point we have the container that can hold a 10, right? We, we learn to increase our capacity for our worth, for ourselves, um, because it's a tender space to step into a, a voice and a way of being that we've not stepped into since we were one or half, you know, half an age. And there's that uh, gentle compassion, but knowing that everything that is really delicious in life and in ourselves comes from that space of the edge, the edge of uncertainty, the edge of not knowing. Um, you know, it, I was reading a, a bit of Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And in it, she said that everything that I thought I would never survive, I keep surviving. And you, I think that's the thing is, you know, I, I don't know that there's an alternative belief to then to think like we get handed what we can handle. And for me, um, I, I am terrified, but, but also thrive in doing things that I know I need to grow into. So if it means breathing a little deeper in a moment where I normally shut down and then using some words for the first time that I've ever done that, or saying, you know, something I've never said, being tender in a moment where maybe I'm more coarse, um, and also just saying, like, do I actually love my life the way it is? Like, I, what I find so fascinating about our world, but, and this is true relationally, people can, I think, relate to this, is we will stay in dysfunctional, unhealthy relationships purely because, and we will stay dysfunctional because we're part of that dysfunction. And I don't mean that as a criticism. 
because it's a learned behavior, but we will stay in that because we fear the judgment of other people if our relationship ends. Like that's when I think the real transformation is we go from I love me if you love me. I'm enough if you validate my enoughness. And we slowly dissect and surgically embed within ourselves with boundaries and choices and honestly just listening for the first time, just sitting in our thoughts and not criticizing them, just going, my God, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be sad. It's okay for this not to be a fuck enough. Like there's more to this life. And when we start to do that surgical transplantation where I say, what you think of me is actually separate from what I think of me because I'm turning up the volume. And as you turn up the volume, you turn up your worth because you realize that your worth is never in whether you choose me or not. My worth lives in the fact, do I choose me? If I abandon me for you, then you are in charge of how I feel about me. And that happens in such subtle ways. It happens in subtle ways in friendships and business relationships and love relationships. And um, that's a really long answer to your question. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great question and, or it's a great answer, my bad. And you have to keep saying the word delicious. It's, it's beautiful when you say delicious. Like I love when you say, <laughs> oh, that was delicious. <laughs> yeah. I love you had it. You a delicious breakfast this morning. <laughs> I did. What does, what does Mark Groves eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? To walk me through a day of eating <laughs> in your life. What, what do you eat? You know, I often fast in the morning. Uh, I usually have a coffee. I drink a giant glass of water when I first wake up, always. I meditate most of the time in the morning, not all the time. Um, I like to read something that I'm working on, like a reading a book that I've been reading. Because I'm not a big reader, I'm more of a listener of books. But some of them aren't inaudible. So, hey, every morning I'll like pick a couple pages. I read at least two. Um, and then my food. My gosh, man, I love, I love a good smoothie because uh, you can jam in spinach. It's like you ate... A, two and a half salads and it tastes like blueberries and peanut butter and banana. I mean, how can we do that? Why didn't we discover this when we were kids? <laughs> uh, you know? Um, and then I like like a good soup, good salads, good steak. I like a good steak. Every once in a while, if I take a picture of meat and put it on Instagram, I get told I'm not creating the love. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, beef jerky tastes pretty good. You know, I bless the food I eat. I get that. I do you get know that. This is my thing about that. So uh, I went vegan vegetarian for a couple of years. Uh, I did born, too. born and raised in Chicago. So grew up eating the hot dogs, pizza, burgers. And, you know, currently I do eat meat. I'm a meat eater and I eat lots of vegetables. Same. And I love steak. Oh, I, I mean, I, God, I, right? You, you give me a good medium filet mignon with some broccolini. I like just... that. This is a bougie. I like this bougie dinner. This is good. Let's broccolini. You didn't even go with broccoli. Broccolini. No, I, need, I need to saute broccolini, you know, a nice medium filet mignon. Give yeah. me some type of red wine on the side, like a, a Cabernet Sauvignon. And, um, you know, I'll need some type of carb. So give me like a uh, sweet potato mash. Oh, yeah. Too. Oh, get that. I'm Irish, half Irish, so I get that. Get me a starchy root vegetable, mainly a potato or a, I mean, sweet potato fries. I mean, come on. 
Sweet potatoes are so good. They're so good. How are they? It's like a trick of the universe. They're healthy. It's like right. A, they're good for you. Yeah. I love it when, like, literally the universe gave us foods that are good for us. We don't have to hack things, you know? Like, <laughs> right. nutrient-dense. Don't get me wrong. A good gummy bear can save the day. But dry mango is my, like, nature's candy, you know? Okay, so your your snacks. Your snacks are gummy bears. What else do you like to snack on? You know, I'm in that, like, I've been slowly removing things that are, well, actually quickly when I do it, but removing things that are... um dopamine feeders that pull me away from presence like that I go to when I need soothing so things like like I quit alcohol I quit um uh, marijuana I'll only use that sparingly now um and I don't I I love sugar so sugar's my like last where I'm like eating an apple instead of a gummy bear or things like that I also find that it relates a lot to like I can overindulge in those things when I'm feeling discomfort or instead of sitting in discomfort. So it's really a practice of continuing to learn how to do that. With the alcohol, what was your relationship like with alcohol before you quit? And what triggered you to say, okay, I'm going to quit this? You know, I'd been feeling kind of intuitively like I should quit, um, that I should just stop and see what it's like. And I was listening to this book by a guy named Paul Selig. And when he writes, all of his books are actually just channeled. So as he's saying the stuff out loud that he's receiving, someone is writing the book. And he has, I forget, like six books. And I listened to his book. It was called The Book of Truth. And in it, I remember exactly where I was. I was walking down the street in Manhattan, uh, right by Canal. And I remember he said, your body can only alchemize the lowest level of truth you're willing to hold. And I was like, what? What does that even mean? But I knew it was like important. And then I kept listening. And he's like, what do you still live by? What truths do you still live by that you know to actually be untrue? And I was like, huh, I need alcohol to connect. And I was like, fuck, okay. Because as soon as I have an awareness about something, I'm like, ah, oh, damn it, now I got to change that. Because I feel like it's um, abuse to self to continue. Abuse might be the strong word, but it's destructive to self to continue to do something that you've actually learned is destructive, at least in that moment. And I, um, I, and then he goes on to say that, you know, you wake up at one moment realizing the role that you were taught to play, but you can go just as quickly back to playing that role. But are you willing to actually alchemize the truths that you've just learned? And he gives the example that it's like being a fish that's living in an aquarium and learns about the ocean and goes back to living in the aquarium pretending they don't know about the ocean. And that immediately I quit drinking after that because I was realizing that there was something greater being born from me that required the quitting of alcohol. Um, and really my creative capacity changed um, I got to know more of myself. Um, I really was still and continue to, but I was turning down or removing codependent behaviors because, you know, if the only reason I was afraid to quit drinking was because of what people might say to me, um, the discomfort it might cause other people, the social shaming I might get, like, why are you not having a beer? Why don't you just have a drink? You know, that kind of stuff, or like at birthdays and weddings and whatever it is. I was like, if the only reason I'm not doing that is because of other people's thoughts, feelings, opinions, 
then I'm making those things more important than my own health and my own intuition. And so I quit. And I've been really playing with this because Ram Das talks a lot about like, uh, it's better to be aware of your erotic desires than to become a horny celibate. You know, he uses the term horny celibate a lot. That we have these people that go to these extremes of celibacy, but they don't actually resolve the sexual energy that is chaotic within them. And so he talks about we go to these extremes like quitting drinking, quitting these things, because we don't yet know how to live in the world, but not be of the world. Um, which is a, a quote from Christ that he talks about. And I, so that's been the dance. Like alcohol was not unhealthy for me. Um, but in college, you know, college culture, I'd certainly like drank too much, time traveled, you know, blacked out, um, used to get crunk, go to, do people even use the term crunk anymore? I don't know. That's how old I am now. <laughs> crunk is from our generation when we were in college. You know, Lil John made that, that word famous. So uh, for us, it's embedded in us. But the question that I really want to know about yeah. the alcohol is you go cold turkey. You just say, okay, I'm done. What has your temptation or desire been since since that moment? How long has that been? It's been uh, 15 months, 16 months. Um, I have no desire. You know, it's really the only times that I really have a desire is when I'm like with my buddies and, you know, they're having a scotch and we're all catching up, you know, that that's the time where you know, I'm having like a kombucha, you know, Um and it's been really neat, though, to sit in the discomfort of that, to know that I can desire that and not choose it. I mean, that's really an ultimate state of personal power. Um, but those are the moments, you know, like when I was going to go to Italy last year and I thought, well, if I'm in Italy, I kind of want to have a glass of wine, you know, in that space, you know, at a vineyard or something. And who knows? I, I'm more of the feeling like if it feels in alignment, I'll have it. But if it doesn't, I won't. And it just hasn't felt in alignment yet. For a person listening who is considering, you know, going on that path for their for their own life and, and you know, maybe they're not getting rid of alcohol completely, but reducing it, or maybe they are getting rid of it completely, but they struggle with the concept of, okay, I'm out with my friends. I want to, I want to fall back on my scotch because that's the behavior that I'm used to. That's what is socially acceptable. We're all drinking together. How does that person say, no, you know, I'm, I'm not, not doing that without, with, with achieving two things. One, without, you know, shaming the, their friends who are drinking, without shaming them, but with also standing in their own power and setting that healthy boundary for their life and the direction that they want to go. I mean, it's the ultimate work, you know, can you make your own experience and your own feelings more important than others? I can't say that your friends won't experience resistance or shame, but it will be their resistance and their shame. You know, I find that when we make decisions that are expansive, um, which is not to say that not drinking is expansive, but it is subjectively expansive. Like if you're having the thought that maybe I need to quit alcohol, there's like a 99.999% that you need to quit alcohol. Because you don't have that thought if you don't think you might have some sort of issue with it, which doesn't mean that you're an alcoholic. It just means that there might be a desire to get more clarity and go into what the alcohol is replacing, the feelings that it is numbing, the discomfort that might be social even 
that it's getting in the way of. And so it's about what's beyond the thing that pulls you away from you because it doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be sugar. It can be drug, any drug. It could be sex. It could be Tinder. But in the experience of saying no, no is one, a complete sentence. Two, it is a yes. It's a yes to yourself. No is also love. Boundaries are love. Boundaries are a beautiful line that you draw around your wholeness. And we have to get used to increasing our capacity for discomfort for other people's feelings because what that does is it delineates my feelings from yours. You know, if I say no to a drink and now you're uncomfortable, that's yours, not mine, you know? And I, if I have a drink to ease your discomfort, then I'm now codependent. I am now embedded in a codependent behavior, which is I'm doing something that's out of alignment for me, self-abandoning, to maintain your level of comfort. And as soon as I experience that personally, I'm like, no more. Because that, that's a slippery slope, right? It's like you turn down to a five, right? You turn down to a five. And if you're turned down to a five in one area, you're going to be turned down to a five in every area. So we have to realize, like, are you taking responsibility for your life? Who do you actually want to be? And your feelings must matter more than everyone else's, at least initially, so you can learn what healthy self-choice is, what healthy self-love is. I align with that so much. Um, the video I posted yesterday on Instagram, uh, someone sent me a DM. And one thing I've been trying to do is that, you know, I get so many direct messages and I try to, and I know you do as well, but I try to, you know, cultivate content around the very specific questions that I'm getting that, you know, maybe the answer isn't out there for people who are already tuned in to what I'm creating. So, you know, I've been just responding to direct messages by just making videos and, and, and posts for them. And what this particular question was, how do I put myself out there more, you know, as an artist, as a person, I want to, I want to date more. I want to, I want to put my, my, my workout, my songs, my dance. How do I, how do I get my book out? You know, all, you know, <laughs> and what I was, and just this connects to what you were just saying, which it just jogged the the connection in my, my brain. You know, I was saying in the video that I'm going to put my work out because at some point in life, I'm going to die. Mm. And when I die, I want to make sure that I don't die with my ideas. Mm, I love that. I want to get it off. Yeah. In my, in my book, Care Package, one of the quotes is to, I want to live full and die empty. Mm. And in order for me to vibrate at that level, there are certain things that I'm going to have to create a boundary with. And to, as you say, to draw that line around my wholeness, there's some things like if you literally visualize, if you close your eyes and you visualize yourself standing and you take, take the camera right out of your eyes, take the camera out of your eyes, stop seeing yourself through your eyes. And you take that camera and you pull it out of your brain and you pull that camera directly above you. And it's looking directly down at you. And you take that imaginary line and you just draw a circle. Picture like a hula hoop. You draw a circle. That's your healthy boundaries. And every single time that you take that hula hoop off and you just allow things that come into your, 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 your sphere, into your space that don't align with you, that don't push you or don't motivate you or don't inspire you or don't help keep you alive. Your hula hoop, it gets weaker and it gets weaker and it gets weaker. 
And one thing I said in the video is, and it just aligns with everything you're saying, Mark, is I said, honestly, if you like me, that's really not my business. And if you hate me, it's really not my business. Hmm. If you hate me, that's your business. That's your situation. Those are your thoughts. That's your feeling. That's up to that's up to you to deal with. I don't have to deal with the fact that you hate me at all. I'm allowed to have my hula hoop and to have my healthy boundaries to push me towards the life that I want to actualize. Because, you know, for someone like me, you know, I buried my father when he was when he was 50. So when I see that, when I see my dad in the casket and he has a full head of, of black hair, he doesn't even have gray, barely any gray hairs. He looks young. That was one of the biggest motivational factors of my adult life is to see someone that I that raised me no longer on this planet. You know, and I know that everyone deals with grief differently, but for me, I've been to six or seven funerals in my life. And mm-hmm. one thing I want to do is honor every person that I buried. I want to honor them by living my life to the fullest. I cannot do anything other than that. I have to live full and then one day, you know, I'll die empty. So for Mark Groves, what does living full mean for you right now? What are some of the things that, you know, you're passionate about? And it doesn't necessarily have to be work. Like I know you just got your dog, you know, talk to me (laughs) about that. Talk to me about what living full is for you in this present moment. Yeah, isn't that, you know, as the circumstances of the world change, I think, you know, we have to be open to pivoting that, you know, often we're being redirected to focus in a different place. At least what, you know, I I really believe we're part of this symbiotic system that is this, the earth, the planet, all the things. And depending on what nature needs and what humanity needs, you know, like I don't work for a company. I, you know, I heard someone say this the other day. I work for the universe. I work for the planet. And I'm just drawn. I, I, I'm very blessed because, you know, years ago I decided I wanted to talk about relationships and that was living full, that I wanted to start writing and expressing. And, um, you know, for anyone hoping to or desiring to begin something, I remember listening to George Carlin, the comedian I was talking to his daughter once. And I remember she said to me, I was like, how did you find your voice? Like, how did you figure out what you wanted to say and what mattered to you? And she said, I found my voice by using it. I thought, oh, well, there's the permission to begin, to begin without knowing. Um, But it's like following those little seeds that the universe plants, that God plants or whatever your belief system is, but even intuition. Um, And it's just to start. And for me, it's just to continue that, that following the seeds and the, what is scary for me? Like what's scary for me to talk about and take on and to believe. And really, I feel like there's a shift occurring in me and my work that is moving away from just, not just, but from the main topic of romantic relationships and really just like humanism. What does it mean to be a human, to exist today, to be met with so many scary things and, and to normalize that. It's scary to not know. It's hard to be a human. You know, it's challenging. It's not like our schools teach us how to relate or how to manage money or how to eat well. They teach us how to become employees, um, which 
again, served a system, but I don't know that it serves human expression today. You know, we have such a desire for our souls to be heard. And um, I don't get to decide if you get to be heard, you have to start speaking. And I think for me, it's just continuing to do that, to like take risks so other people can take risks too, to be scared and do it anyway, to to look at this dog that I now have <laughs> and his name's Carl. And in the first couple of days I looked at him and I could feel like this part of me that was so scared that, I mean, gosh, you have a boy now. So I'm, yours, I'm sure it's even more for you turned up. And for me, it was this feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have another being that is dependent on me, like literally dependent. Like without me, he can't go hunt a rabbit. This guy would be done. He never, he can't even stand up sometimes. He's so floppy. So that, that has been real good to see how everything around us is a teacher. And Carl's my teacher right now of just like prioritization, self-care. Cause I mean, this, this guy needs a walk in the morning for a long time and a walk at night. And so we've really spent a lot of time just being present and, um, and just connecting to self and to others as much as we can. It's beautiful, man. No, it's not beautiful. It's delicious. It's delicious, <laughs> it's delicious. To, to, to hear you allowing yourself to transition. I think a lot of the times when you're in a position where other people observe you, it, the conclusion is, hey, this person has figured everything out. This person's <laughs> life is set. This person's life is perfect. And obviously, uh, we both know that is far from the truth. <laughs> yeah, far very far, truth. very far. And what I love is that you're allowing yourself and your work to transition. You know, um, I remember I got a huge number of followers. I had 10,000 followers on my Instagram account. This was years ago. And hope you can hear my sarcasm and huge. And <laughs> someone, you know, my, my username used to be SMAZ3. So, you know, Sylvester McNutt, who lives in Arizona, the third, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. I like you that. know, AZ3. Sounds like the name that uh, Elon Musk just gave his kid. What was like, it? Was, it? It was like AMX1. <laughs> like some, oh, man, I got to look that up. Anyways, yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> I just started thinking about, you know, the future. This was years ago. I'm thinking about the future. And I'm just like, eh. I'm like, some people can't really aren't going to know what this is. If you look at it, it looks like the word, you know, smash, you know, I'm just like, uh, <laughs> I, need to, I need to change this. You might as well have Crunk 01 as you Right, now. right. Crunk 1993. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like little John Homage. <laughs> so I was just like, you know, I need to change this. I want people to, you know, I guess take my work more as it's coming from, you know, an entity more than just like this, you know, just random names. So I, I just mm -hmm. changed it. And uh, I was telling my friend that I was going to change my username. And she was like, there's no way you can change your brand. You have 10,000 followers. They won't, they won't recognize <laughs> you. They won't know you. Like, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you change your brand? And, you know, I just explained it. I'm like, look, I'm like, it doesn't matter if I have 10 million, like what's a, a name change. I mean, P Diddy changed his name from Sean Combs to Puff Daddy to P Diddy. This is one of the most <laughs> recognizable people in the world. I, I so got 10,000 followers. I, nobody knows me. I can change my name. And like, 
I just remember like giving myself permission to like allow my brand to change and what I'm presenting to just change and just to flow. And I feel like it's such a freeing thing to just be able to just live in a place of just flow. It really is, isn't it? It's just like that woman who sounds like a great friend, right? Because it comes from concern. It comes from concern. And that is awesome. But when we're trying to be expansive, the people who don't live in the world where anything's possible get scared for us because they live in a world where not everything's possible. And so although limiting beliefs, like someone saying to me, you can't do a degree in that, or you can't just travel Europe, those come from their perspective of what you can and cannot do. And it's so like alignment and integrity to self resonates so much more than a perfectly built out business plan. Always. And that continues to be rewarded within my own world is like the more I stand in my integrity and my alignment. Like I've said yes to doing things that then after I'm like, oh, you knew you shouldn't have done that. And now you're going to pay the price for not listening. And I love that you have this, that you did it anyway, right? Because it's like, you have to honor you above everything. And I think for anyone listening, like take the, take what, what Sylvester's learned, what I've learned um, and continue to learn because that's never ending that we are, that you just got to be true to you and no one's going to know the right path for you except for you. And that's like following those nudges. I mean, I remember when I was trying to choose a brand name, it was like, okay, I started with create the love you want. Um, and then Mark Rose was already taken. Cause let's be honest, my name is as common as it gets. And I'm named after an apostle. As soon as you're born in the 70s and 80s and you're named after an apostle, so are like 8 million other people. <laughs> it's like the name Talon or something now, you know, <laughs> or Eli. These are all such common names now. But um, I remember looking for like what to do. And everybody has a fucking opinion. Everybody does. So if you go asking, it's like this idea, like sure, getting guidance and mentorship is great. and the more we begin to trust our own intuitive pulls and make decisions that do and do not work out from listening to ourselves, um, we gather more information and we build more self-trust. We start to give knowledge to feelings. Oh, I felt like I shouldn't have done that. I did it. Now I feel shame. Okay, what could I have done earlier? That would be different. And I think that's the that's that beautiful part of recognizing that you're not supposed to have it all figured out. Like that's the whole point of being human. And we live in a culture that is afraid of taking risks because if you take a risk, you might get canceled now. You know, we're like cancel culture. It's like, oh, you said this in 1994. I'm like, of course I said that in 1994. I was fucking 25 or no, I wasn't 25. I was 18 or 17 or 16 or 15 or whatever I was. It doesn't matter. Um, I think that's really interesting. I was listening to the Beastie Boys documentary. Have you seen that on Apple? I have not. They talk about that song that they did that was like, girls do the laundry, you know, right? And they were talking about it saying like, that was such a misogynistic song. Like, we're sorry that we were that way then. And the person interviewing one of the Beastie Boys said, well, that's pretty uh, hypocritical of you to say now. Like, look at who you've been when he was talking about like, 
you know, equality and we need to fight for that. And he said, well, I'd rather be a hypocrite than stay the same. And I was like, fuck yeah. Like, amen to growth. Amen to I'm so glad I'm not who I was when I was 21. But that I've learned from who I was when I was 21 or 25 or 18 or whatever. That's that room for growth, you know? Like, don't we all want to offer our children this space to, like, do the things the wrong way while guiding them with values and virtues, you know? I don't really understand the cancel culture. The This premise of let's build a culture where anyone who makes a, a mistake is is unforgiving. They're unhirable. They're unwatchable. They're they we can't embrace them as a friend. We can't embrace their music. We can't embrace their movies. And you know, I get that there are some things that people do where it's just like, whoa, I'm not I'm not messing with that. You know? Yeah, of course. Uh, and those things are extreme. And we know what those things are. You know, we know what those things are. But if you say something that in its time. Uh, in the context of what you were saying was not offensive, but in the time now it is offensive. I can appreciate your apology, but to me personally, you don't owe me an apology. You know, I'm not, I've, I've been a teenager. I've been, <laughs> I skipped that. I didn't make any mistakes as a teenager. What are you talking you know, about? Yeah. Like right? I've been a teenager. I've been uh, suspended from school before I've been on punishment with my parents, you know, I I have made mistakes in my in my church that I used to go to with my grandmother. You know, I've said the wrong things in college. I've I've there's been past girlfriends that I used terms and words that I don't like. There have there are behaviors that I have done and that I had to work out in my life that I didn't I didn't like who I was. So for you to come in my life at this point, after I feel like I've done to, done the work to try to heal, to try to be a better person, to try to be conscious of past decisions, I can't allow you to cancel me. Cancel me? I didn't cancel <laughs> myself. I kept working on myself. Right. I kept trying to get better. I kept trying to Im- improve. I kept trying to enable empathy you know and it'd be different if a person was just like man uh there's this funny meme they have of uh michael jordan and it's just like man fuck them kids and i don't know the the context of where it comes from but it's just funny like you'll see something on twitter and people are posted they're like man fuck them kids and it's just like michael jordan's face so I, i don't know the full context but you know, if you're taking that energy, and I'm not saying Michael Jordan said that, but I'm just saying if you're taking <laughs> that energy, like, oh, I hurt this person. Oh, man, fuck that person and fuck everybody else and fuck everybody who, you know, their grandmother and every, you know, that's different. I'm not talking about yeah, that. Yeah. But if you're a Beastie Boys and you, you know, make a song that talking about women doing laundry in the 80s was perfectly acceptable at the time based on what was going on, as as far as my knowledge goes. I can honor you saying, you know, you want to apologize and you want to change and you don't want to, you know, hold anyone back to, you know, to, to that degree. I respect I also, you for that level of humility and courage yeah. to own your mistake. I respect you, but I'm also not going to cancel you because yeah. of the mistake you made when you were young. Well, doesn't Jay-Z, like he talked about his old music being like, I'm embarrassed of some of the songs that I had, you know, and, 
And I get that. That's that's what growing is. I love that you said like, you're going to cancel me. I didn't cancel me. I met myself with grace. Like I met myself with compassion. I grew from that and I'm proud of who I am. And I, I really think that comes back to what we said earlier that, that that is determining that what you think of you matters more than what someone else thinks of you. And when you build bulletproof self-worth, when you are living in your own integrity, then when someone says like, you're a piece of shit, you get to go inside your own inventory and you get to go, am I really? No. And sometimes it's like, yeah, that behavior was shitty or that thing I did was, okay, how do I reconcile that? How do I repair and how do I grow? So I don't do that from a conscious space anymore. And that requires so much humility. That requires a healthy relationship with, with shame um, and curiosity. And, and that's, the, again, like this really beautiful skill set and bridge in relationship of anything of any kind is the gentleness and curiosity to understand why you are the way you are, why I am the way I am and space for you or me or both of us to change. And that is a skill that is cultivated from within. And I think that people really who exemplify cancel culture do not have compassion for their own skeletons. And so they would rather chase down other people's. And they also don't, they feel rejected within themselves and they haven't faced that. So they focus on rejecting other people who probably emanate the message that they haven't accepted yet either within themselves. Like they still have the same message in their own dialogue within themselves. So it's kind of fascinating from a psychological perspective. It takes a lot of energy to lead any type of, hey, let me cancel someone. Like you, <laughs> right? you have to dedicate it to that. Well, to- what else could you be doing? Get your own microphone and get your own message. Challenging someone else's message versus speaking your own, you know, like you said, like, basically, you know, if you don't like me, that's none of my business. And I love that from, you know, in the four agreements, which is such a great baseline book. It says like, what other people think of you is none of your business. Like, what a great thing to, it's so hard to practice though. Cause you know, it's like, I'm sure you experienced this, um, where you get like a negative comment or like, something said to you and you're like, oof, like the human in you, the kid in you is like, oh, and you got to adult, you got to like grab yourself up by the collar and be like, I love you. You're good. You're going to learn from this. You're a good person. Let's keep going. It's worth it. I swear it's worth it getting fucking two by fours to the head with troll. <laughs> I swear it's worth it because I love you. And the message matters more. The message matters more. The, the walking, the can keep going matters more. Um, and my sister, I remember she said to me when I first started, if a third of people don't hate you, you're not doing great work. And I was like, can we make it like a 10th or like a 20th? Cause like, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's the work. That's the work separating my worth from your word. And, um, I, that's hard work. It really is. Cause evolution says fit in or be dead, really fit in or die. And I love how you articulated like. I'd rather live full and die empty. And I haven't buried my father yet. And my heart goes out to you for that because I can't imagine (laughs) what that's like. But one day I will know. And I think death is the greatest motivator in life. And I hope that currently as we're experiencing what we're experiencing in the world, which is really just the truth of our own mortality, 
and the seemingly instantaneous possibility of it uh, is that we will fully live, that everything we've put off, we will not put off anymore. Uh, the I love you's, the I'm sorry's, the this is my dream, I won't tolerate this anymore. All of these things that we've been putting off. You know, I don't know, I can't remember who wrote the quote, but I love it. The one that is, the trouble is you think you have time. You don't have time. We don't have time. I mean, your father didn't even get very many gray hairs. And, you know, I think about that sometimes. Like, I bet you, because, you know, I had a friend pass away not that long ago. And I had spoken to him not long before he'd passed away. And I remember thinking, like, I bet before that happened, he was thinking about, like, dinner. He was thinking about his week. And and then he wasn't anymore. And uh, that's how quickly life gets taken from us. You never know when it's your time to go. When I'm on my walk this morning, uh, I make a playlist. Probably once a week, I'll just make like a new playlist. And um, mm, I want to get up on this. Do you have it on public on Spotify? Uh, no, I have it on Apple Music, but I can send you the link. Oh shit! Yeah, I'd like to get into the window of your yeah, of your I music can, choices. I could send you a link, and it's it's actually funny. the The guest I had on last week, uh, his name is Chase Tucker. He's a uh, fitness guy, works for Peloton. We actually made a full playlist together on the podcast because. You know, that's part of his job is making playlists for the classes. Yeah, they have great music in their classes. I mean, it's one of it's, my favorite part of fitness classes. Dude, it is such a – and I know you're like me where you just love psychology. When you actually sit with someone and give them total control and total power to make a playlist, you learn so much about the way they think and feel and see the world based on the music choices. It's I had never done that with anyone until I sat down with Chase and did it. And it's like – I feel so much more connected to him because he has a playlist in his phone and I have a playlist in my phone that we made sitting down together. Like, and the intention was to, to build that connection and it's beautiful. That's it's so cool. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was on my walk this morning and I was listening to Tupac and there was uh two Tupac songs. Tupac's one of my favorite artists. And the very first song is only God can judge me. And the second song that came on is called Shed So Many Tears. And, you know, I'm a writer. I'm listening to the words. I listen to every word. And in both songs, he made references to his own death. In one song, he was very descriptive. He was talking about, you know, bullet holes being in his body and his body not being able to handle it and him passing away. And then another song, Shed So Many Tears, he was talking about, you know, people crying for him because he died. Mm. And, oh, man, it's just, it's, it's so, there's just so much duality in the fact that he was murdered by gunfire. But he had many songs where he was talking about being murdered by gunfire. And I don't have the answer. But I'm very curious about it because I just wonder if those songs helped create that outcome. You know, we, me and you both speak on how words impact your life. And he 
painted visual pictures of his own, not even death, his own murder. And as beautiful as his music is, as much as he has empowered me, that is the one thing that I always think about when I when I do hear a song. And he does have a reference to, you know, his 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 passing away. And it makes me it's it's a reminder to me that I have to be so conscious of what I'm saying to myself, my my self-talk, what thoughts I'm allowing myself to believe. You know, and in your course, your your boundaries course, you talk about things like this. Can you tell yeah. me about your your boundaries course and kind of just give us a kind of an introduction to I mean obviously we've done this over the last bit of the 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 time we spent together but just talk to me about the course man how we can how we can set boundaries especially with boundaries with thoughts that you know maybe maybe don't help us you know this self-fulfilling prophecy we don't want to we don't want to create the prophecy of hey I'm going to get murdered we want to be more in a space of you know we want to create the love and and create mm-hmm. happiness and create healing so maybe you could just give us some words on on how give us a story on how to go about this i saw what you did there though with create the love i like that um you know the interesting thing about one uh, there's a saying that's words create worlds and really that's about both the external dialogue i use and the internal dialogue i have a lot of people when they have really self-critical inner dialogue don't realize that that's usually the voice of someone else that they've adopted and made it their own. Usually a parent, often a caregiver, um, sometimes a coach, sometimes a toxic friend. Um, it can be anyone. But what happens is, is you know, the idea that like someone else's thought about you gets repeated within your own head and becomes a thought you have about you and thoughts thought over and over again become beliefs. And unconsciously, this becomes embedded from a neurological point of view. There's that saying that neurons that fire together, wire together, that that the more I think a thought, the more it becomes real. What we don't tend to know because we aren't taught it, and it was something I had to learn as an adult, is that your mind is yours. You know, we believe we're a slave to these critical thoughts, not recognizing that we are the ones who birthed them in terms of adopting them and then making them our own. So we forget that it's our computer, our brain, and then we can choose the programs that operate on it. And it is biologically normal to struggle to create a new thought because you have to create a new neural pathway. Well, neural pathways are stubborn. So it takes conscious intention to change the way you think. Also, as humans, we are negatively biased. We are meant to look for what's a threat and what's wrong because that's what ensured survival. But we're not just human and biological. We're, you know, there's a something that's coming through us that is different. That is, that is soul. That's there's something going on that's not just simply we have conscious choice. It's just that conscious choice is really hard when it involves disrupting something that's comfortable, even if it's not fun or joyous, even if it's shitty, it's still scary to change because it leaves us in a space of uncertainty. And when we think about the context of one, if you have a self-critical inner dialogue is one naming that inner dialogue 
naming it, giving it a name so it's separate from you, you create space from it. And then as you're observing it, you can say, hey, I see you coming up again, Tom. And if your name's Tom, sorry. But you know, you're like, I see you coming up again, Tom. I know that you're here because I learned to bring you in, but I actually got it from here. And you have to be consistent and mindful of that. And you have to say something I'd rather think right now is you have to, you can't slip, you can't get lazy because in the laziness is the repeated behaviors. And then the next step, you know, because most people think of boundaries about keeping toxic behaviors out, keeping, you know, behaviors that aren't okay out. But what is um, really, uh, boundaries are also about um, not just keeping behaviors out, but containing our own, containing our own thoughts, feelings, and emotions so that we can be mindful of them and not project them onto other people. So boundaries aren't just about uh, one side where we're being, you know, keeping you away from me. They're also about me keeping me within me, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I think that's the other side of boundary setting that, and I, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, you know, but <laughs> toot, toot. I, I think when Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were winning championships, I think they knew they were Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I think that me and you have done some phenomenal work with uh, boundaries and plenty others too. Like I know Bren, Bren Brown, she's done some phenomenal work with uh, setting boundaries. And it's a conversation that I like to pay attention to because I like to point to boundaries as, you know, a part of my deep healing journey as well. Something I talk about in my course, uh, I have a, a huge section on it where we're talking about setting boundaries. I actually think, you know, people always ask, how do you let go? How do you move on? Uh, I believe that you don't let go or you don't move on until you learn how to set healthy boundaries, you know, and that is what I was talking about in the deep healing course. Like if we want to move on, right, we want to let go, like you let go of your alcohol. The reason you let go of your alcohol is because you deemed yourself worthy of going to a different level of your experience. And in order for you to get to that experience at, at that moment and at this present moment, you needed to create a healthy boundary with your old way of thinking and with your old behaviors, creating those those behavior boundaries within self. See, a lot of the times people only think a boundary is, hey, let me create this with another person. As you said to Tom, hey, Tom, the alcoholic version of me, I have compassion for you. I understand. Why you want this drink? But me, I don't want this. So I'm going to send you to your basement or your attic, or I'm going to send you for a walk or wherever, <laughs> but you got to get the hell out of here, man. <laughs> you got you got to get the like, like Martin used to say, you ain't got to go home, but you got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> get to stepping. <laughs> and that's one thing that I'm so proud of your work because you help us explore within. And it's not just a, hey, let's, Let's look at other people. It's like, no, we're gonna exp- we're gonna look within too. It, it and it it might be ugly. It might you know you might cry, yeah, but yeah. Uh, we're gonna have to do it. And that that's one reason I personally connect uh, with your work so much. So can you walk me through your creative process? 
Yeah, you know, I'm very much like a, and thank you, man. I really resonate with your work because of the level of self-responsibility. I mean, I, I really think that's everything. If you take on your responsibility for self, you won't depend on other people to heal your wounds, fill your spaces, um, because you have boundaries around who you are. You trust yourself. You have a knowing of self. And when you do that, you don't seek toxic behaviors anymore because you don't have them within you. They don't match something that is a belief within yourself. It's no longer congruent. You might vibrate at a different frequency or you just make different choices. It depends on the language you want to use. Um, my creative process is very much like last minute, um, pressure cooker kind of creative process. I write when I have to, I create courses when there's a deadline. I, go real deep into, I'm very much like a, I try to take complex systems and patterns and make them simple to understand for everyday people. Um, I have a real interest in understanding how we work, like why we create the same experiences in our lives and what is the behaviors that do that so that I can then go backwards to someone and say, hey, this isn't your fault why you do this but it is your responsibility that you do it. And you don't actually, I, I've actually gotten to this other place too, where I feel like as a culture, as a society, as a just online in general, we love to pathologize everything. We want to figure out why, 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 why. And we want to figure out why a lot. And in figuring out why, what occurs is that we forget that there's a, that we get stuck in it. We get stuck in it instead of saying, you actually don't need to know why you do something to know it's not good for you. You know what I mean? Mark Groves, I respect your business savvy. Uh, I've been fortunate as one of your friends to get insider information on, you know, how you're running things. And I'm not going to pretend to know everything or every detail. I don't. But you've shared a lot with me. And I want to express my gratitude to you. for helping me and pushing me. And the exact words you you said to me were, you're worth much more than that. And those of anything you've said to me, I, I haven't forgot that exact phrase. You say you're, you're worth much more than that. And we were talking about me expanding myself, uh, expanding my business and, and my offerings and you know my teachings. And for about a year and a half, I was toying toying with the idea of expansion. And it, it wasn't until you said, hey, no, you, you need to do this like now. And then, you know, we got off the phone and I just said, OK, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I, and I went forward with it. Where did you kind of learn, you know, your business savvy, you know, and, and, and how do you currently increase it now? You know, obviously you're doing the create the love work, but on the other on the other end of the work that everybody's seeing, there is like an actual business that's being mm-hmm. ran and you're employing people. And like talk to me about that side of what you're doing. First off, thanks uh, so much for the kind words. I mean, <laughs> it's it's so true that myself included, it takes uh it takes standing in the truth of worth to get worth, you know, like you don't believe you're worthy of something unless you receive it. And I think that's an ever moving thing from the beginning of, especially when we're pursuing passions, 
it's hard to realize that you can get paid for being passionate about something, right? Because it's a disconnect. Generally, you're sort of lucky if you fell into passionate work. Like if you happen to love numbers and became an accountant, you know, but most people are like struggling through those types of things because they don't love it, which is no offense to accounting, but it's just a pretty easy subject to pick on. The, you know, it's true. The, that process has been really interesting, the business side of it. I mean, I ran a territory, a, a couple states of business for the company that I used to work for. So that allowed me like, you know, I probably ran, I don't even know, maybe 4,000 events, maybe even more. And I've had far more than 10,000 hours of conversations and sales and building rapport and learning. Um, so that was certainly a great training ground to learn about business and what works and what doesn't and how to build advocates and how not to. And I've said so many times the wrong thing, which just teaches you what the right thing might sound like. Um, in the context of business, what's been really expansive and scary and fun, and I have no idea if I'm doing it right because I am doing it differently than what I've experienced, which is I really want my business to feel like a family. You know, I want the people that I work with um, to know that I have their back always and that I care about them and that they're safe to be themselves and they're safe to make mistakes. And there are realistic human expectations of them that I will communicate and not make silent. And, you know, it's been interesting. Like I have, um, one of the wonderful people who works on my team, uh, made a total normal mistake that anyone would make in the position that she was in. And it then led to this actually <laughs> really great level of knowledge of a gap that we hadn't been looking at. And <laughs> I was, I remember when she first spoke to me about it, she was like worried I'd be upset. And I was like, no, like, thanks for pointing out a gap in the like training and experience expression that we have when we bring on someone new. Like, I'm so grateful. And it was like such a mind fuck for her because she's like, wait, I messed up and you're not mad and it's, it's okay. And I'm like, yeah. I, I just want to have a space where we are psychologically safe to be ourselves, to be human. And that's a learning process because it's like, where's the balance between being compassionate and kind and loving and also having, because, you know, there's that leadership that can be too laissez-faire that then people don't trust the leader or um, don't know what they're being led to because there's no one leading. And how do you have leadership where everyone gets to be a leader, where it's not, because, you know, when you're paying people to do work, there's innately a hierarchy and a structure just by the fact that you're paying them. Um, but I think that can be a similar toxic experience, if not done correctly, that the patriarchal role of relationship can have too. You know, there was not something for nothing in those experiences. And so I'm really mindful of looking at like, where does patriarchy fit in this with the way that we structure the business with the fact that we have different dynamics in the workplace and how do we create it so it feels safe and there's like acknowledgement and exchange. I also like to do the five love languages with the people I work with because I know that they might have a different need. And so then if I know words of affirmation is one, I'm like, Hey, you're doing such a great job. Thank you so much for this. And I always pick something specific that they've done. That's really cool. So it's learning. Hey, like I'm sure your experience with your business, how does it feel for you? Uh, so my team right now is two, three. 
My team varies. Uh, when I'm doing events, it's a bigger team. But my team currently is is between three and seven people. So small business. Um, pretty much every person for me is part time. Um, they have you know other things they're doing, so they they treat their participation you know as as a part time job for me. Um, I think I relate to you a lot in the fact that I had a great corporate. Uh, experience before I became an entrepreneur, where I got to learn a lot uh, on the other side of of business, sales, management. I worked in management, worked in sales, worked in leadership, developed great relationships with the leaders uh, in my corporation and got a lot of good mentoring through them, developed some really good relationships. So I got to see a lot of different leadership styles, plus playing sports really gave me an advantage of seeing different coaches, Seeing different team captains, you know, and I've really been able to just observe uh, leadership styles, management styles my whole life. I've studied it, but I've really got to observe it, which I think is more important, the, the observation, because I feel like when you observe it, you attach like an emotional intelligence level with it where you're 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 seeing, OK, how does this feel being led that way? How did it feel or t- leading my own employees this way? How does it feel? So being able to be a leader in management with my corporation, I really think helped me become, you know, where I'm at now, where I have employees and people who work for me, team members, I really like to say. And it's hard. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. It's hard because it's a fragile thing. You don't want to, you know, we've been talking about boundaries. Like you don't want to overstep someone's boundaries. Like, you know, I don't want to text you too late and say, hey, tech, check on this thing for me. Or, you know, or what's going on with this order? I don't want to text you too early in the morning. So I try to find like a time period where I'm like, okay, I'm going to contact you, you know, just during this time. And then it's like, there is a side where I don't only want to talk to you about work. You know, like you actually introduced me to the guy who edits my videos, your guy, he's my video editor as well now. And like, we've developed a pretty good relationship over the last week or so. We've been just kind of talking. He's funny. Yeah. He's such he's a so great cool. wit. Yeah. We've just been talking about other things other than videos. You know, we've just been talking about life and, you know, Hey, how are you doing? How's the family? So we're like developing a relationship. So it's really cool for me in that aspect. Cause it's like our relationship started business. Now we're starting to get more of a personal relationship. And I like, I like that side of it, man. It's really, it's really about just relationship building. I think. And I think that the key to success for me is going to be how I like, like cultivate these relationships, you know, moving forward. And yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. When you're paying someone, they, I guess there is a certain, there's a certain relationship that exists, but you know, I, I don't know, man, I don't let anything go to my head. I don't, I don't allow myself to be cocky. I don't allow myself to feel like I'm above people or better than mm. people. I, I hate people like that, honestly. Me like too. I, I I don't like that kind of energy. I don't like, like being put on a pedestal either because I feel like it doesn't give me permission to be human. I'm like, kick me right off that thing because I'm going to fall off it anyways. Yeah, you got to let me know. Like if I'm if I'm not doing my part, you got to let me know. You got to let me know. Otherwise, what are we doing? So I'm the leader. I can only tell you when you're not doing your part, but you can't tell me when I'm not doing my part. That is not good leadership. You know, and I remember in the corporation, they used to call it the the ability to coach up. Mm, yes. And I like that. I like that the culture I have, we we can do that, you know, just like you, you're, 
your partner who told you like, Hey, we have a gap here. Like, how do we, how do we fill this? How many people do you have on your team? Oh, now we have three full-time and, uh, that's pretty much it with, uh, I think we have one on maternity leave. So four technically full-time, but one's, one's away raising a child, which is great. Um, and it's been really fun. I, it's interesting too, cause I have a diverse team, all female. And I'm like, <laughs> it's, I, I'm like interested to get a male on the team just to see or anything in between really just to change up the energies a bit just to see, but it's beautiful to have, um, people give me feedback on my work from different perspectives and that continues to invite me to grow. Like they, I wrote a newsletter not that long ago and I sent it to them and like a full resonating, all, all three of them were like, uh, I don't know that that's actually the best. <laughs> you know, they all had the exact same feedback. And I was like, oh man, it's so great to have people who tell you the truth. I would never, ever, ever want to surround myself with people who don't tell me the truth about who I am and how I'm being. Um, because, you know, as they say, you can't see, you can't see the forest when you're in the trees. And it's no better thing than to have someone around you who, including in partnership, was like, hey, you're actually capable of being better. You know, and friends who will put truth ahead of the need to be loved by you, knowing that love is the truth, but that's not what we've all been taught. Are you able to share kind of the, the roles that your team members have for you? Yeah, I mean, they all, there's one who does social media management, so there's not as much diversity in her role for other people just because her knowledge is so specified. Um but it's really a collaborative team effort. She lives on a different continent, so that changes things um, because the time zones are a little more challenging. But the other two live within the other three live in Canada, including the one on Matt leave. Um, but yeah, there, there is a lot of collaboration and teamwork and fun. It, it's cool to be um, building a system as you're within it, as opposed to being part of one, like you were saying about where you used to work and you worked in management and worked in sales and. I did the same thing and it was so interesting being able to influence culture, but not um, pivot the culture uh, and knowing that like for me at the old company I was at, and I, this is true of all my experience with all companies, even from a consulting perspective, is that when a company says something is important to them, but does something that indicates different ideologies that gap between what you say matters and what you choose. Whenever there's a gap between those two things, there's an inauthentic toxic culture that becomes born. And so I hope um, I'm very mindful of there not being a gap in that because that's true for all relationships. When there's an unspoken uh, ether in the relationship and nuance, but then there's what you say or project or pretend. Um, I like for the truths that are inside of me and inside the company are the truths that are expressed and chosen outside of the company or outside of myself too. I like that. How, how long after you started, um, did it take for you to say, okay, I need some help and I need to bring, bring on some help. You know, I don't know about you, but for me, I was overextended by the time that occurred. Like I was starting to get resentful of my work a little bit. I was starting to get exhausted 
um, I was starting to not want to do things and then things were slipping. So like the quality of the work I was doing, um, cause I couldn't manage everything. And then I remember working with a business coach who was like, write down everything you hate doing in your work. So I like wrote out this list and then she was like, hire someone to do those things. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, cause <laughs> you realize that there's like, she was like, someone loves doing what you hate. <laughs> like for someone else, what you hate is their passion. And I was like, man, because for me, organizing and like detail oriented stuff, I just don't, I don't really enjoy. I don't enjoy it all. I don't really enjoy it. I don't enjoy it at all. And for someone else, that's like the detail oriented and systems and making things flow. That's like their favorite thing. But there's this business book where it talks about like creators need implementers, but they don't hang out together because they don't like each other because they see the world so differently. And I laughed. That's so true is like the, the real skill of a good manager, a good leader, a good team, a good workplace is that you hire people or, and work with people who are good at things you're not good at. And that, that is such a, I, I think that's, you know, a similar thing of holding space for the possibility that you don't know how to do everything and you shouldn't know how to do everything. <laughs> you know, if you do, then you become, what is it? A a jack of all trades, a master of none. Mark, I feel like people are good at one, maybe two things tops. And when I mean good, I mean great. Like, I feel like, Mark, you're great at the skill of oration. You can speak in front of people. You can speak in a podcast format, on a video. Speaking is one of your best skills. But then when you come to like you say, the detail-oriented things. You're, yeah. you're hate. You know, so why would you continue to do those things? Like that's not freeing your energy. You are trapping yourself, and that's what happened to me. I'm over here now. For me, I was doing a bunch of things that I really like. Like I like editing videos. I actually do like the process of editing videos. I like working on my book. I like social media marketing. You know, I like I like marketing. I like building email campaigns and, you know, all of the things that I do, I, I pretty much like them all. Mm -hmm. What I don't like is shipping my book orders. What I don't like is responding to customer service requests because when I go, when I'm dealing with things like that, it actually stresses me out. Mm. And then when I'm stressed, I'm not able to be creative. And what I want to want to do is I want to build my life so I can have a creative flow every single day. So if I want to create that day, I can flow, whether that's doing a podcast or writing, you know, speaking, whatever it is, I want to be able to have the energy set up with inside of me so I can flow. And so immediately my very first hire was someone to help me with my book orders. She sends all my book orders. She does all the customer service. If anyone has any issue with a book, it doesn't come to me. Because then you got to do research. You got to look into where's the order, track it down. For me, optimizing my time means I'm not touching that. The next step for me was I, I got a uh, calculator, not a calculator. I'm sorry. There's an app where you can track your where you're spending your time in your different projects. And, you know, LeBron James says it best. Keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing for me, and this aligns with not doing things that you hate that you mentioned, the main thing for me is I like writing my books. I love I love writing a book. I love speaking. 
that drives my business and that drives me. So when I tracked, let me tell you, I was only riding like six or seven hours in a week. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough for me. I wanted, I wanted to write more for that. So then I hired the video editor because I, I said, you know what? I was doing 16 hours of video editing, but I was only doing six hours of writing. I said, no, I'm going to do zero hours of editing. And I'm going to do the, the, you know, about 20 hours of writing because that's what brings me to joy. I think people just starting out, they don't, they don't realize that they're going to need help. So how, how do you think we can get out of our ego? You know, because that's what keeps us from getting help. How do we get out of our ego and allow ourselves to get the help we need in life? Well, you realize that you'll drown under your own uh, stubbornness. You drown in the needs of other people. You know, it's it's not a dissimilar behavior to codependent behaviors, right? Because we can't, we are so stubborn in our wounding, our pain, or whatever. I got this, like, don't wanting to be seen as not wanting to be seen as flawed in any way, or weak in any way, or whatever the the fear might be. Not enoughness. It's like, I got this. I got my whole world. Oh, do you? Because it's getting bigger and it's getting heavier. And you know, like we weren't meant to do this alone. Like that's true of all perspectives. It's okay to need people. It's okay to depend on people. It's just not okay to do that at the cost of yourself. It's not okay to subcontract your own fear of supporting yourself to other people. Like that's when it becomes a slippery slope. But I think from a sense of self-worth, you've not, to give love is actually quite easy, you know, for the most part. Most people are over-giving. They over-give. But to actually receive love is really where the rubber hits the road because to receive love, to receive support, to ask for help, to even pay someone for help, all of it requires the humility that you need help. It also requires the belief that you're worthy of that. And that's why... Work can be an incredibly healing modality too um, if the workplace is healthy and supportive of your development. Just like um, asking, you know, when I finally hired someone, I could breathe. You know, I could breathe. And there had to be some level of like acknowledgement that my, as you said, my mastery, my area of mastery, my lane that I was good at was not the other stuff. I also did enjoy video editing. It just wasn't the best use of my time because I could use that time to think about things and communicate things that helped other people. The editing of the video for someone else is their passion and they love it. Like the guy who does our stuff, Ted, he's amazing. But you know, it's like, for me, um, I really realized that every time I don't show up, I'm not embracing the very gift that I've been blessed with in some levels and the experiences that have shaped my skill set and my continued development of those things. It's like when I'm not doing that, I'm not showing up for the older versions of me that needed what I had to say, which is not from an egoic perspective because, of course, at the same time, I need rest and everyone needs rest. So it's not getting lost in that but and knowing that balance is important. But when I'm doing work that's not my zone of genius, I'm not building up the energy. I'm actually depleting it. As you said, I'm not freeing my energy 
to channel it, to like use it into passions, which when your energy goes into passions and things that fill you up, you are not depleted. You are left more full, which is such an interesting difference. When you do work you love, you don't end up empty. Mm, damn. When you do work you love, you don't end up empty. Thank you.